And we are now slowly going into the analysis, the, the continue the analysis of the deep, severe text that is the Yoga Sutra. We have seen that already in the previous readings, Patanjali has gone through some fundamental definitions. He has defined what yoga is. He has defined the conditions of the mind and he has actually defined the five main modifications of the mind which according to him were the problem. As you are going to see in the next uh, sutras, he is giving then what is to do to reach to this condition of yoga and then he starts defining the results. So he is still in the very general realm of definition. The last sutra that I have commented for you here was the sutra number 11, which was defining the last of the five modifications of the mind, the memory. The sutra number 12 then comes back to our main thread of practice, and it is a famous one. It is a sutra which has been taken over in Bhagavad Gita or from Bhagavad Gita. It is a sutra which has repeated so often by great masters in yoga. The sutra number 12 briefly reads, the stopping of these fluctuations, so all those five modifications, which means basically the vrittis, the stopping of these fluctuations results by persevering practice, which, which Patanjali calls abhyasa in Sanskrit, and by detachment, which he calls here vairagya. So, the dealing with these modifications of the mind in the meaning of yoga is uh, done with two conditions. There are two fundamental conditions which actually ensure the success of yoga. In a very, very similar trend, when Arjuna is complaining to Krishna that Krishna, it is impossible to discipline the mind because the mind is like a wild animal or whatever other comparison he gives there. There are so many in the Indian mysticism. Krishna says it is true that it is difficult, but it is possible by Abhyasa and Vairagya. Exactly, identically the same two, which mean, of course, Abhyasa means a repeated and persistent practice. Patanjali, in his desire to be precise, will define it in a second. And Vairagya is a very controversial word, as you know. It is being also expressed by Aparigraha, non-attachment. It is usually translated as detachment. Here in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, it appears first, it's interpreted more in a mental way, and it is interpreted as a mental condition of non-attachment or detachment, which is freedom from attraction and repulsion. This is a concept which is very much taken from Buddhism. Here we can see some influence of Patanjali. But let's come back to the statement and then analyze each and every one of them. The statement is very clear. The arresting of the fluctuations of the mind, which basically means yoga, the success in yoga, to reach the very goal of yoga, is possible, says 
Patanjali, by perseverance, by persistent, continuous, repeated practice, and by detachment. These are the two pillars, the two fundamental pillars of yoga as given by Patanjali. Therefore, your question as practitioners, if you want to come immediately down to the practical level, is how is my perseverance, how is my persistent practice doing, how is it going, and two, how is my detachment. Therefore, it is not enough that I practice, I have to practice with detachment. It is not enough that I am detached, I have to be detached and do the practice. This is a poem, truly. This, uh, these two statements, this statement about these two conditions has been repeated under so many forms. Even the later tantric texts such as Shiva Samhita and other fundamental texts that we use today so much in Kundalini Yoga and uh, that we use so much in uh, the working with the chakras and the kundalini, they actually come back to the same thing. The Shiva Samhita spends a whole page, a lot of shlokas from the text, <clears throat> saying not by this, not by philosophy, not by this, not by theory, not by pilgrimage, not by rituals, not by this is the spiritual realization obtained, not by this are paranormal powers obtained, not by this are accomplishments obtained, but always by practice, by practice, by practice, by practice, by practice, and by practice. Therefore, remember that this is an essential point, exactly as the great masters of prayer, they advocated this ceaseless prayer, exactly as uh, in the 20th century, Gurdjieff called it a work, a spiritual work, and he advocated that this work must be more or less permanent, the work meaning for him, for him an effort of self-awareness, of awakening, of reaching the essence. This is completely, completely consistent with what Patanjali says, and this is one of the treasures of the yogis. The yogis have always said, it needs to be done with practice. Without practice, it's not possible. There exist a lot of people who are speculative. Many of the yogis of India who follow the rules or the values of Patanjali, if you ask them something, is this possible or are you really doing this or how about this and so on, they will all the time come to mention, they will immediately step forward mentioning, I am a practical yogi, which simply means these things for me are practice. They are not theory. I am practicing. I am trying to do these things in practice. The problem is not that you should hear about doing samyama with a tree and thus feeling what is to be a tree. The point is that you have to do samyama with a tree until you can feel that that is the spirit of yoga. Therefore, this is the spirit of abhyasa, of relentless practice. 
Basically, the yogis say you cannot give up before you reach the goal. This is exalted in so many ways. Either Fritjof Nansen, the Norwegian explorer, who says, uh, try, try again, never give up, always, whatever. If you win, he says, did you succeed, continue. Did you not succeed, did you fail, continue. It's like it doesn't matter, just continue, continue. And exactly as Dalai Lama said it in the the present Dalai Lama said it in one of his spiritual discourses where he simply emphasized and repeated this several times over sentences again you can never give up you should never give up whatever you do that it works or it doesn't work this you should never give up you should always keep on and you should always keep on either it's an effort of the heart or it's an effort of compassion or it's an effort of developing the third eye or it is an effort of a technical form of yoga, or it is whatever, you have to keep on and on and on. This is uh, a concept which is very, which is immediately separating the spirit of those who practice. In all the forms of spirituality, those who practice indeed, those who have been successful and who practiced indeed, they have always practiced. There exists in the human being as most of you know already, a cryptical spirit of dissolution, which we normally call tamas, tamas guna, the inertia, and this dissoluting uh, spirit, it simply says, oh, don't do anything, just stay. Unfortunately, this is a big delusion, this is not the law of life. Even Jesus himself, when he speaks about meanings of life, in this direction, he always insists on the fact that you have to do something. For example, he uses the parable of the dinner or of the talent. He says a certain man gave, gave to his three sons or servants, it doesn't matter, to three people, that man being God, of course, three talents, three coins, three coins of the day, three units. And those three people reacted in a totally different way being entrusted with those. One of them was afraid that he would lose them and he buried it and to have it safe somewhere so at least he doesn't lose it. The second one did something and kind of produced another talent or and another one made really a lot of work with it and kind of multiplied it tenfold. And in the end when the man came to ask back for it one came back with ten instead of one one came back with two instead of one and one dug out the one which he had, and he came one with the one which was entrusted to him. And paradoxically enough, in this parable, the man who borrowed it, who is God the Father again, ad adopts a very tough stance to the one who just gave back the one talent. He says, I didn't give it to you to bury it. This talent is interpreted as the abilities, like for example, you are born in this life with a loving heart and you are merciful. And then you say, if I could at least preserve this quality to be merciful, that's good enough for me. No, no, says Jesus. God is expecting you that in the end of your life you should be twice as merciful as you were when you were born. It's not enough to keep the coin. You have to multiply it. If you don't multiply it, you are stagnating, and technically speaking, there is no stagnation. In another part of the Gospels, Jesus also comes and says, 
he who does not gather together with me wastes, scatters, and he formulates it in other ways in which he shows very clearly that in this universe there is no stable point, which simply means as simple as that. Whoever doesn't go up, goes down. This idea that for the time being I'm taking a break and I'm not going neither up nor down is ridiculous because there is no stability in this universe, exception made of the universal self, the ultimate self, Atman, Purusha, as in Yoga Sutra, or the nature of God, which is the only fulcrum of the universe. Else, in this universe, everything is in movement. The ancient Greek philosopher has said it, Pantare, everything flows. There is not a moment of stability in this universe. Everything flows. Therefore, it's unfortunately, and this comes as a blow to your laziness, which is generated by Thomas always, that people say, now I will take a little rest. The bad news is that there is no rest in this universe. That is why the great philosophers who have been seeking for nirvana, they said, I am looking for the final rest of nirvana. There is only one repose. There is one fulcrum in the nirvana, in the purusha, in the non-manifestation. Else, in this universe there is everything is in motion, everything bubbles and boils and ferments and transforms all the time. And therefore, remember that there is no stability. There is an illusion to think that, oh, I'm, uh, for the time being I'm taking a break and I'm not evolving. The implication is clear. If you are not evolving, you are involving or devolving. And therefore, this is the secret of the great game of life. The great game of life says, go, go, go. There is no stay. You will stay when you will reach in Sahasrara, in Samadhi. That is the only way to stay in this universe. There is no other possibility to stay. And therefore, remember that we need to have a constant spiritual effort. If Even if you move little in the parable from the Bible, God does not make a great difference between the one who multiplied the coin by ten and the one who multiplied it by two. He kind of is kind of equally satisfied. It's like this one is really good, this one is also good, but the third one who just buried the coin and took it out and said, see, I still have it, I didn't misuse it, I didn't lose it, I didn't screw it. God says, well, that was not the point. You missed the point completely because I didn't give it to you to preserve it. That is why in our lives we are supposed always to give a continuous growth. If we do not grow, we flop, we fail the meaning of life. Therefore, life is made of evolution. We are on this planet to evolve. If we do not evolve at least a little bit, to give satisfaction to the Dharma, because this is the Dharma of the universe. Evolution till the point of no return. If we do not manage to do this, then automatically we are betraying the purpose of our existence. Therefore, we need to evolve. We need to push. There is no rest. There is no uh, passivity in this game. This is a bit tough, 
because this is the spirit of the yogis. Some people consider this like, oh yeah, you are taking it too seriously, and it sounds a little bit like you fanatically have to do. It's not. It's what all the spiritualists are telling us from all their traditions. We are here to evolve. This is the Dharma of the universe, of the, and therefore we need to make some effort constantly. Any one of you thinks, I want to take some rest? Remember that in 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, you will all of you be lying in a coffin, and then you will take a very, very long rest. Until that day, there is no rest. That is not to be interpreted absolutistically. It doesn't mean that you cannot take a rest here and there during the daytime. But when you draw the line for the accounts, you should always go on plus. There should always be a little plus. You should be stepping forward. If you don't step forward, you are sliding backwards. And that is why this is pretty tough. Because here Patanjali puts a difficult condition. He says, uh, you have to perform abhyasa, the persevering practice. You can never give up. Remember that even people who have been advanced in spirituality, they felt they wanted to do some practice. Abhinava Gupta was enlightened and super enlightened, and he still was entering in samadhi, meditating, playing his spiritual music, and whatever else he was doing there, he always was on the side of the practice. From Milarepa to Jesus, you always find some practice. You can say Jesus did need to do some practice, but Jesus, according to the canonic theology, was the Son of God. He was God incarnated in a human body. He was an avatar. What need did Jesus have to do any practice? And yet, if you read carefully, you are going to find moments when Jesus himself is praying. He is going somewhere a little bit separate from the others, and he is praying. Why should Jesus do prayer? Because he was God. What need does he have? Even in the case of Jesus, you find the spiritual practice, the abhyasa, that there is always an impulse to push, to push, to push the universal will. This uh, goes in the way that some people say, yeah, but isn't the goal of yoga and of all things peace? Yes, it is peace, but it, that peace is misinterpreted because that, that peace does not mean passivity that you sit and rot on a couch, and that means peace. Because that is actually not peace. That is hell. That is rotting. That is decaying. That why that is why Jesus repeatedly sees, says, my peace is not the peace that people normally know. I'm talking about a different kind of peace. He's speaking about the true spiritual peace, which is active, which is the like Buddha, Spinning the wheel of Dharma. This is a peace, but it is a peace which is at the same time active, involved in the ongoing of this universe. And, as about the word Vairagya, it is defined by the commentators of Patanjali, exactly as the Aparigraha which comes later. Vairagya is Aparigraha, which means detachment. It will be defined in detail by a sutra, which is coming two sutras from now. That's why I don't insist on it now. The commentators say this is freedom from attraction and repulsion. Remember that that is what makes the human being, the mind, prisoner of karma. Whatever we do, we are having a mixture of attraction and repulsion. Things which are 
pleasant to us. We want them more, exactly like a drug addict. The drug addiction is only an extreme pathological almost form of the attachment which plagues everybody. We are all drug addicts. We are drug addicted to everything, from food to sex, from fame to name, and from anything to anything. Everything in this life which gives us fun, we are addicted to it. We want more of it. And of course, up till a certain point, it's normal. This represents a law of nature, which actually builds up the self-preservation, the preservation of the species. Try to think that if animals wouldn't learn to avoid what is painful and destructive, they would keep on dying, stepping in the wrong places, harming themselves. So it's a mechanism of learning of the mind. The mind is learning by learning, hey, this thing is bad or at least unpleasant, it feels unpleasant, harmful, avoid it, and this thing is good, give me more of it, this I can have without any risk. In the long run, the wisdom of the ages of this planet has demonstrated that that is a primitive and wrong judgment. It may work for animals in their limited understanding, because animals work based on their instincts, but in the moment when you add to the equation the consciousness, which is our gift and curse at the same time, this consciousness changes the equation completely, because you know that there can be a very unpleasant thing, such as a foul herbal medicine, which tastes horrible, smells horrible, and if you would give it to a child or to an animal, the child or the animal would avoid it and reject it and spit it, because it's bitter and foul, and yet if you drink it, it's very healthy and it's exactly what you needed to heal yourself. And therefore, you cannot actually, from the standpoint of a higher knowledge, you cannot go simply relying on this primitive thing. I like it, give it on, bring it on. I don't like it, keep it away. And therefore, this uh, detachment is a very, very difficult concept because it involves a superior control of the mind. It's not only the instinctual level, but more. In spite of my instinct which says, don't drink this terrible brew, I know I have to drink it because it's a very good herbal medication which will solve my disease, which will help me get stronger to purify myself and so on. And that is where it comes. Therefore, the two pillars of yoga are very simple. Patanjali, as well as many other experts in yoga, says only two things are required from you. To check up your detachment periodically. Am I attached? Am I detached? If you accept to be attached, then you accept to be a prisoner, and that's your problem. You will see the outcome of that. And so check your detachment. And second, am I still pushing? Am I still doing abhyasa? Am I still doing effort? Therefore, any one of you here can take a mental vow. If I indeed am a spiritual seeker, this is my vow, or these are my vows. All my life I shall continue to push, seek, practice. All my life, till the last day of my life, I will continue. I will never stop. I will never give up. And the second vow is, I will always try cultivate detachment. Always, always, I'll try to practice detachment. It has not been described in detail right now, but I'm coming to it with one of the next 
sutras. These are the pillars of yoga indeed. Perseverance and detachment. And Patanjali, and Patanjali is not to be taken lightly, for many Patanjali is a great, great colossal authority in yoga. Patanjali says, you can reach samadhi, you can cancel the vrittis of the mind by perseverance and detachment. That's all it takes. Practice, perseverance and detachment. Then he goes in analyzing them briefly. He says of the two, the sutra number 13 reads, of the two mentioned above, of these two, Abhyasa and Vairagya, Abhyasa is the effort to secure steadiness of the mind, which means it's a very subtle implication here. He says, again, Abhyasa, the practice, the perseverance, consistent practice, repeated and persistent practice, is the effort to secure steadiness of the mind, which means you do something to stop the mind, to steady it, to calm it down and to bring it towards more and more steadiness, which means practice by Patanjali is specifically defined not just as any kind of practice, but only that which calms down the vrittis. This is very important to mention in today's confused spiritual and sometimes pseudo-spiritual environment, because some people can define as practice a lot of things which are not practice. You tell them, are you doing practice? Uh, well, my practice is not like your practice. I'm having some special kind of practice. Right. It's good to be smart. But uh, what is your practice? My practice is that I'm hammering nails in the wall. Is this a practice which is slowing down your mind, which is calming down the vrittis? Apparently not, from everything we know, unless it is done in a special state of mind, with a special routine. Yes, even hammering nails in a wall can become a form of yoga, if you really, really want. You can transform it into an amazing practice of concentration of the mind. Everything can become a yoga. Sweeping the garden with a broom can become a yoga. The Zen masters considered it a great yoga. And yes, drinking a cup of tea in a tea ceremony is also a form of yoga ultimately. But if it is something, if somebody is trying to wind you up and saying, oh, it's this practice, and then this practice, it is nothing oriented towards calming down the mind, then it does not fulfill the definition of Patanjali. Patanjali says, can be defined as practice, as Abhyasa in Sanskrit, only that which is the is an effort to secure steadiness of the mind. Anything which calms them. Do you do relaxation? Yoga relaxation. Some people can say, ah, you just lie down and you say, no, this is laziness, you know. No, it's not true. The yoga relaxation, it is an effort to steady the mind because you are relaxing and if you'd be nervous, you'd be all over the place and shake your limbs and not able to sit in relaxation calmly for at least 15 minutes or why not more. That is why the practice of relaxation, although it is not work from the standpoint of this external thing, it still qualifies as abhyasa. If you do one yoga relaxation per day, it means you are doing yoga practice, you are doing abhyasa, because for 15 or 30 minutes per day, you are making an effort to calm down your mind, to steady it. If you reach perfection in that or not, 
that is something entirely different. That is debatable. But you are doing the effort to steady the mind. Therefore, remember that not everything can be qualified as abhyasa. Therefore, sometimes people mix it up, they do all kind of things, they say I was reading a book, I was doing I don't know what. Did that have as effect or is that meant to give you at least a 10% reduction of the agitation of the mind? Then it's abhyasa. If not, you are lying to yourself or you have been deluded by somebody else. The practice is all the time switching it down, switching it down more and more. This is what can be termed as abhyasa. And the second statement which Patanjali has to give us about this formidable concept of perseverance and practice, it says, Patanjali says in Sutra number 14, it, this abhyasa, this perseverant, persistent practice, it becomes firmly grounded by being continued for a long time with a reverence without interruption. These are the three conditions for the practice of Abhyasa. With this you practice Abhyasa. It should be practiced with complete faith and it should continue uninterrupted and it should go on for quite a long time. When these three conditions are fulfilled, then Abhyasa becomes firmly established and becomes a part of one's nature. Remember that there exists a proverb even in the Western culture which says habit becomes second nature. If you repeat something for long enough, it becomes you. Therefore, the same thing is valid about Abhyasa. Some people never manage to have a persevering practice because they lack one of these three elements. Let's mention them again. It has to be continued for quite a long time. A practice which you do has to be continued for quite a long time. Therefore, you may consider that you want to have a practice. Like, you decide, I want to do meditation. Okay, meditation is not something which you do for weeks. Meditation is something which you do for a long time, or else you will not become inert. You will not become, if you want, addicted or accustomed to meditation. You have to do it for a long time. That is, of course, a relative term, but it still says something. Two, it should be done without interruption. This is one of the main things. This is what some people can say, well, again, it sounds a bit uh, fanatic, you know, because tomorrow is the birthday of my father and I don't have time to do this, and therefore, you know what it is said, nothing is black and white completely, nothing is 100% this and that. It's one thing to have a small gap here and there with measure, and it's something else that all your life should be made of gaps and breaks. Some people admit, okay, I'm doing my practice, and yes, yesterday I had to travel, there was an emergency, I couldn't put bring ends together, my program was a bit chaotic, and because of this I didn't have time to do this, which I normally do. But that is happening one day out of 50 days, right? It happens seldom, super seldom. Okay, that's a continuous practice. But if uh, Monday I have a problem, Tuesday I do a little bit, Wednesday I have another problem, Thursday I do a little bit, Friday and Saturday are I don't know what, and then Sunday I'm doing... No, this is not a continuous practice. This is not practice without interruption. A practice without interruption means that all of you should seek for something 
even if it's a 15 minutes, 30 minutes things, which should be done without interruption. Only in absolutely extreme terms, like a super impossible program, an emergency, something extreme, then you say, okay, I interrupted a little bit, because really, honest to God, there was nothing I could do here. This is not fanaticism, it is mental discipline. Without this, some processes will not happen. That is why, whatever you take, I am making consecration. You know, I am not good at other things, but I love to make consecrations. I took a discipline upon myself, that every morning when I wake up, I consecrate my day. Every three times per day when I eat, I consecrate my act of eating. And when I go to bed, I consecrate my night. I do five consecrations per day. A little bit like the five Islamic prayers or something. But you know what? Every day I do those five. For how long? For seven years, let's say. I take a tapas. Seven years, which is a cosmic cycle. Or if you prefer, twelve years, which is another cosmic cycle. I take this tapas. For the next twelve years, I'm going to do this. It's not much, but in the moment when I have fulfilled it, it has become second nature. Then nothing can take it away from me, because it is something which I have done uninterrupted, perseveringly for a long time. And the last condition is given here with reverence. Some authors translate with complete faith, which means one must do the practice which one does with faith. It's a double entendre word in Sanskrit. It's one of those words which can be translated in several ways. So, this practice, you do five consecrations per day. Maybe some days you do eight hours of yoga, but the minimum which you ever do is five consecrations per day, because that, okay, those five consecrations per day, they have to be done first with a certain degree of faith. Faith means you have to believe in yourself, and you have to believe in what you do. If you do it like, uh, yeah, right, I'm doing this, but you know, it's actually worth nothing. I'm just doing it because, you know, this is a practice, then it will not become second nature. By the laws of suggestion and self-suggestion, those of you who learned that in the third month of our yoga courses, automatically you know that it has to be accompanied by an emotional background. This is the emotional background, that you do it believing in yourself, believing in what you do, because else it's empty, it will not give the result. And, of course, the other meaning of the word here is with reverence, that you are doing it, in a certain way, like, hey, I am doing something which is spiritual, this is my spiritual thing, in this way I tell to my subconscious mind, this thing which I do here, should be placed high, because this is one of the high things which I do in my life, I am defining it for my subconscious mind, this is not just some other trite activity of the day, hey, I am doing my apiasa, this is and therefore, this is something which is noble for me. It's something which I want you, my dear subconscious mind, to place up on a pedestal, because this is something which I'm proud of, in the positive meaning of that expression. So, that is, uh, again, a condition which is a bit subtle. Remember, abhyasa is done for a long time, with reverence, and uninterruptedly, as much as that is humanly possible. And Patanjali guarantees, if you do it like this, then it becomes second nature. At some point, 
you are not even needing to make any effort. You are doing it and doing it and there is no need to push yourself because it has become your second nature. That is why it is important to continue like this. You can look upon it even on some passive efforts, like there have been great spiritual personalities like the notorious Meher Baba of India. Meher Baba decided to practice silence for a while, then he took a vow of silence for 12 years, and after 12 years he was so pleased with what resulted from his continuous silence that he kept silence for 30 years, and then he kept silence for 40 years, and basically he never came out of silence. It became second nature to him. He was doing it, and he felt so good about it that it was for him a problem to start speaking. While most people are chatterboxes and they cannot stop from speaking, and if you ask them to hold silent for one day, they feel that they die. Not everybody, but some people do, really. And you can make that test upon yourselves anytime. Some people, if they pass that threshold, they on the contrary feel that speaking is a nuisance and actually that they prefer very much this condition which results from silence. Therefore, remember that this was the definition of Abhyasa, how to achieve perseverance, how to achieve a condition which allows you to turn it in second nature. Not that you have to push yourself with effort. It simply becomes second nature. Remember also that many of the things which you do today naturally, good or bad, doesn't matter, they are for you second nature. You haven't been born with them. You didn't do them when you were five years old. You have learned to do them by daily repetition. And you have done them, and then it becomes second nature. This being said, let's go to the next sutra. The next sutra turns to the more difficult, more subtle and more difficult concept of Vairagya. Patanjali said, this is to be obtained through Abhyasa, perseverance, and Vairagya, detachment. He explained why, what is Abhyasa, what is this perseverance, what is this spiritual effort, ceaseless, persistent practice, and now he turns to the second and he is explaining to us what is, according to him, Vairagya. He defines it in a long sutra, one of the longest from all the texts. This sutra, when translated in European language with all the explanatory words, becomes quite long, and it reads, When an individual becomes free of craving for the sense objects which he has experienced, as well as for those of which he has heard, that state of consciousness is called detachment. So detachment is free of craving, and here he doesn't mention because it means free of craving and of rejection. Attraction has a sister, repulsion. If you have attraction for some things, you will automatically have repulsion for other things. It's the seesaw of mind. It's the yin and yang. If you want to have a hill, you necessarily must have a valley near the hill, because there is no hill if there is no valley. And therefore, automatically when Patanjali says, Craving, it also means the rejection, the fear. So, free of craving for the sense objects which one has experienced, so either direct experience, or of which one has heard. Therefore, that state of consciousness is called detachment. This detachment is nothing else but the root of all the philosophy of Buddha. Buddha takes from yoga this story about detachment and rises it to the height of a religion, of a world religion. According to Buddha, 
the cause of the suffering is ignorance, and the cause of all this ignorance which keeps us in samsara is nothing else but desire. The fact that we desire this and desire that, and thus we make ourselves prisoners. Because my desire is like a rope with a hook. If I desire that, I throw my rope and hook to it, and I hooked it, but it has hooked me also, either although I might not be able to see that. Whenever I desire something, that object is hooked by me, but I am hooked by it as well. Therefore, I become the prisoner of my desires. And all the philosophy of Buddha can be reduced in practice to this one thing. You have to give up desires. Desires are a disease of the mind, and of course with all the implications which result from this, which of course implications can be very vast sometimes. Therefore, this idea is very well known that one should work on this tendency of the mind. This is explained also very well in the Bhagavad Gita, which says that an individual can be free in this very life, even while performing the various necessary acts of life, if only he can detach himself from the selfish need of assuming the good or the bad effects of his action. It is detachment from the fruits of action. Exception made of those of you who are in the first month of yoga and who maybe never heard the lecture on Karma Yoga, all the others have heard the lecture on Karma Yoga, and you know that that's exactly its definition. We somehow have the tendency always to attach ourselves to the fruits of action. If we do an action, we want to see the fruits of it. We want to enjoy the fruits of it one way or another. And Karma Yoga says you can do everything in this universe if you renounce those fruits. Then it's kind of an action which is free of charge, which is therefore free of karmic consequences, which is the point. What is important for meditation, for example, is not one, what one does or does not in the outer life. It is the inner life, the life of inhibitions, suppressions and complexes, the life of mental and psychic errors that plays a decisive role in meditation. For this reason, vairagya must be cultivated so that the proper attitudes come into being. The practice of vairagya starts from within and never from without. It's something that you have to decide inwardly. It is one of the great diseases. It is very difficult to convince people to detach themselves. People always, and even if you press on them and come strong on them and go to a powerful spiritual authority who sits and keeps a discourse and says, Buddha has said that the cause of suffering is attachment and therefore you should detach yourself, People shake their head and they say, yeah, yeah, right, mm, interesting, yeah, right, that is true, and so on. But everybody in their mind says, I still want to keep something for myself, you know, it's kind of, let's be sincere, you know. I don't want to give up everything, there is something for me, I want to keep something for me. This is the impossibility to convince somebody of the need of detachment. This detachment is, in the beginning, as a terrible thing. Some meditations in yoga, such as, for example, meditating on the colossal power of time, which is called in, Kal in Tantric Yoga, Kali, meditating on the colossal power of time involves that we should detach from everything, because what is time but a merciless killer which will take everything forever from us? There is nothing that you can have 
in a billion millions years. There is nothing which you will have. Nothing. The sun and the stars and the galaxies will disappear. There is nothing that you can keep. The astral universes and the causal universes will melt into the universal dissolution, into the universal pralaya. So what can you keep? Nothing. Your dreams, your memories, your mind, your thoughts, your concepts, your everything will all be burned in the fire of the cosmic dissolution. Therefore, not only physical objects, but not even subtle thoughts or energies cannot be kept forever and ever. That is why everybody who meditates on that realizes that sooner or later I will have to give up everything. Everything, 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 everything. That is why this is a frightening concept and the normal person cannot conceive of it. The great yogis have decided that this is a sign of spiritual maturity. If you hear me or somebody with spiritual authority talking about detachment and it rings a bell in your mind and heart and you say, yes, I should get detached. I know that this is the source of all happiness, that this is the realization. And actually I wish, I almost madly wish to get detached from everything. Then it means you are spiritually ripe. You are mature. Maybe you have done yoga in previous lives. Maybe you have been incarnated for so many times that you have reached to the same conclusion through unfortunate experiments. But ultimately, you are right because you are ready. It kind of sounds good. And if you are trying to cheat by saying, um, yes, but not quite everything, you know, a little bit here and there for me, it's okay, then it means you are not yet right. Either you have to bang your head against the wall another thousand lifetimes, or you simply have not practiced these things and you are very green. You are a rookie in these things and you need to assimilate them quickly, quickly. Therefore, remember that this is a great, great issue and people cannot understand it properly. Let's put it, before I explain further, let's put it in the right perspective so you understand where it comes from. The great spiritualists <coughs> tell that in the evolution we have to follow a multiple step process. I have already spoken about this in the metaphysical discourses which I gave a month ago and more and which soon will be typed and uh, therefore available in a more or less elaborate or edited form for you to go through, those of you who never heard about those things, because those are fundamental truths that I do not wish to repeat all the time or to explain into detail. Here is a resumative uh, thing which needs to be said. The reality, either according to the Buddhists or according to the Sankhya philosophers, and others and others, is made of these two aspects, manifestation and non-manifestation, which in the language of the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali calls prakriti, or nature, manifested nature, which means objects, energies, feelings, and everything, and purusha, which means the pure spirit, the transcendent. Western philosophy also calls them the immanent aspect and the transcendent aspect of reality. These two aspects are complementary. These are the aspects that the Tantric tradition of India calls Shakti and Shiva, the manifestation and the non-manifestation. The truth of existence 
appears like this. In the beginning, now, all the human beings, although they potentially have spirit in themselves, they never use it. The spirit is a latent part. It is asleep in the human being. It is not very well, to put it so, it's not the most clear definition, but in a relative way for us, as a subjective experience, it feels like this. In the beginning, I am nothing else but a conglomerate of body parts, energies, emotions, and thoughts. That's all I am. I identify with my body, with my energy, with my emotions, with my mind. Everything stops with the mind. For most common people, there is nothing beyond the mind. I am my mind. The mind is me. There is no other me but this me which can be defined by the mind. My mind can tell you a 300-page text about who I am, but it's all nothing else but a listing of qualities made by the mind. Therefore, I don't identify with Purusha, with my Shiva nature, with my Shiva consciousness. I'm identifying with my Prakriti. Therefore, each and every one of the people looking for evolution is actually existing in Prakriti. And it is, therefore, a prisoner in Prakriti without knowledge of Purusha. The first uh, emergency of spiritual life is that I have to get the opposite part because I am deeply imbalanced. I am a prisoner of the natural forces. I can see the natural forces, feel the natural forces, interact with them, control them to a certain point, whatever, but I do not know what is beyond. I have never seen the transcendent, been the transcendent nature, the Purusha, the Nirvana. Therefore, I am like a bird with one wing only. I just know the manifestation, but I don't know the non-manifestation. Therefore, my big emergency is, give me Purusha. Give me Atman, the Supreme Self. Give me the Buddha nature. Give me Sahasrara. Give me the Void. Give me Shiva. Give me Purusha, as I said. Give me Nirvana, because this is what I am missing. Without this, I don't exist. Therefore, the spiritual practice of the beginners in many traditions is almost like, screw Prakriti, give me Purusha. Because I'm not interested in more mind and more emotions and more vital power. I've got a lot of these for thousands of lifetimes and I'm running like a squirrel in a circle, you know. I want something beyond that. Therefore, give me the transcendent. Give me that thing which is absolute perfect. The fulcrum, the infinite. Give me God, if you prefer. Therefore, I'm trying to do that. That is why in the beginning I feel like dropping everything turning my back to everything and just escaping. There is almost the feeling that this universe is a prison and it keeps me. Everything I do, I'm trying to meditate and my telephone is ringing. I'm trying to meditate and the is coming and buzzing and entering into my nose. I'm trying to meditate and I don't know what big need for me is somewhere. Whatever I do, the world is disturbing me with cold, with heat, with hunger, with thirst, with friends, with company, with society, with everybody disturbs me, doesn't leave me alone so that I can do my thing. Therefore, it's like this is an aggressive prison which hooks me and what can I do? Simply tear myself with a mad effort 
exactly like a wild elephant that breaks all the ties and ropes and sets himself free. Therefore, in the beginning, the freedom effort of any spiritual seeker is a bit mad, fanatic, strong, you know, like I don't want to look, you know, the whole world can fall into pieces, I have to find God, I have to find myself, I have to find the Atman. If I don't find that, I am eternally incomplete. And therefore, in the beginning it's normal that I'm cultivating a detachment, part of this that I want to leave the world of Prakriti behind me, it simply means I'm not interested in anything of it. As long as I'm not able to do this one thing, I cannot reach where I want. Now, let me give you the good news. The good news is that the full spiritual evolution means the, the reality, the great absolute reality of this universe is made of Purusha and Prakriti. And actually in spiritual life you are not supposed, as some people believe, because they are being taught only the first half of yoga, because many yoga masters say, just do the first half, you know, just do this and when you will do this, the rest will come to you automatically. And that is why many yoga texts, and partly that is the story about Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, funny enough, Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, which is worshipped as a great yoga text, is still from the category of partial yoga texts because it is teaching us mostly the first half of the spiritual trip, but it doesn't say much about the second half, which is very subtle, very spiritual, beyond the mind, and which transcends the ordinary understanding. A few words about that in a couple of moments. And therefore, even the Yoga Sutra describes the first part. Yoga Sutra tells us you detach yourself from everything, exactly as Buddha, approaching uh, the same policy, says you have to kill all desires. If you have a small desire left in you, it's not good. You have, and people find it so painful. It's like, you know, what? why should I kill? Okay, some people who have done yoga for lives and lives before coming here, they say, yes, it sounds right. I understand. I don't know why the others don't want to believe this. But it's quite obvious. Yes, you have to get detached completely. Leave everything. Be completely deprived. Completely, completely of everything. That's the path. I know. And I'm ready to take that step. I'm ready to die for it. This is what I'm going to do. These people who are prepared, okay, they understand. For the others, it sounds so painful. Now you have to get the full understanding, to get the perspective, to get the good news, and to understand that this is not just a sadistic game, because else it would seem a sadistic game. Why on earth have we been born in a world which is so alluring? There are so many attractions in this world, simple joys of life, or sometimes really great, great sophisticated joys of life. There are so many of them, and we have been born just to give them up. It's like God or whoever created this universe is a pervert, because it's kind of put, put us in the middle of a candy factory, and tell us you cannot eat of the candies. It's kind of why, you know, it's really painful. This is not the meaning of evolution. This is not the meaning of life. It's a misunderstanding, because most people read only the first half of the yoga texts, the part which talks about this escape, escape from Alcatraz. You know, you are in Alcatraz, get rid of it. But why should you get rid of it? You should get rid of it because you are supposed to come back to it afterwards. But you are supposed to come back as a jina, 
as the Tibetans say, as a victor, as the master of the Prakriti or of the universe. You are not supposed to live it just for the sake of leaving it. Because if it has been created by the divine consciousness, it has been created to a purpose. And the purpose is not that you should just get out and period, full stop. No, you get out only to be able to get the other wing of the bird. And when you have got the two wings of the bird, then you can fly equally to the left and to the right. You are not impeded anymore. You are supposed to get freedom precisely because only a free man can govern. If you are in a prison and you are a prisoner, you cannot be called a free man, even if you are relatively fortunate. For the time being, I'm like James Bond, handsome and smart and lucky, and therefore my life is great. Your life is great now, but nobody can guarantee that if you will behave like a pig, in ten lives from now you will not get to hell. And therefore, what's the big story that now your life is fortunate and good? That doesn't bring much. Therefore, coming back to the story, remember that there exists a second half of the spiritual adventure. And that second half is coming back in glory, returning back as the emperor of the universe. You go and become Shiva, and when you come back, you are not Tom, Dick and Harry anymore. You are Shiva, and therefore you can rule the universe. Prakriti becomes the playground for you. Therefore, the second half of the spiritual adventure is almost inimaginable because it says you need to take a certain item. It's like a treasure hunt. You cannot go to step two before you fulfill step one. It's exactly like somebody who says before entering the factory, you have to use your punch card. And if you don't use your punch card, it will not count. Therefore, first when you go to the gate, you punch the card and then you, you enter the premises. It's the same here. You cannot become accomplished in yoga, accomplished in life, accomplished in the universal accomplishment, if before you have not punched the card. To punch the card means you have to reach for a brief instant, for a brief interval, the state of Shiva, the transcendent. You have the wing of the immanent, much or little, that's irrelevant for the time being. You have to get the other wing of the transcendent, and then you have got the complete adventure. That is why, remember that this detachment is a temporary thing, because you are supposed to come back, but you are supposed to come back as a ruler. The situation is a little bit like this. Let us suppose that you are a prisoner in a concentration camp. And the only way for you to escape is to take off all your clothes and everything and get yourself naked and swim through us through the sewer, through the pipelines of the sewer system of the prison, like in that famous movie, right? And you get, you set yourself free and your consciousness says, what? Leave my beloved shirt, which was on me for the last two years. But you know, in my little cell here in my prison, I have a little plant that I'm watering every day. I have a little bird that I'm feeding every day. I have actually managed to put aside, I don't know, a few pieces of wood with which I build a small, uh, I don't know what, uh, reading table or something. Like, even a prisoner in a prison builds a cozy environment for themselves. And if somebody is telling you, escape, but you have to leave everything. You cannot take the bird and the plant 
and the reading table and whatever. You have even your clothes. You have to let, you have to jump in the sewer and swim without your clothes. Then the prisoner is a little bit in the beginning like what? Am I supposed to leave everything for what? And the other says, the other one says to get free, you stupid. You know, it's kind of, isn't it worth leaving everything to get free? Do you prefer to stay here with your bird and plant instead of just going and getting free? Of course, this concept of freedom is very abstract. What does it mean to get free? Because, and then, let's put it like this. You are escaping from your prison. You reach to the place where you have authority. And from that place of authority, you turn to the prison. But this time, you are the manager of the prison. You are turning back as the president of the country. And they cannot put you in prison anymore. You become an inspector. And then you go into your room and you say, huh, this is my old reading table and this is the plant which now has withered almost and this is, uh, ah, there is the bird which I was feeding when I was... You come back to your things. You actually don't kill them or throw them away completely. But it is necessary to have this intermezzo that you should go through the divine consciousness, reach it, Make sure that you have it. Make sure that you have reached there. And then you can come back and be free as much as you want. Because you have suddenly turned into the emperor of the universe. And nothing can stand in your way anymore from that level. Therefore, this is the meaning of vairagya. Vairagya, complete detachment, sounds scary and frightening for people. But remember, it's a temporary stage. It's like a test. Can you let go of everything for five minutes, please? Of course, it may be there may be five cosmic minutes, which means a lot, but that doesn't make a difference. Can you let go of everything for five minutes so I can show you something, something different which you have never seen? Okay, I'm willing to let go of everything for a while. I let go of everything, then I see what the others have not seen. I see the unseen. I see the transcendent the ineffable, and then if I choose so, I can as well come back, but I have seen the ineffable. And that is why I'm uh, saying again, the practice of Vairagya has to be understood into this context. If you put only the first half, it's like it's frightening. You have to give up everything and go and die. That's all. Give up everything, let everything, let go of everything, go head forward in some sort of void, from where you will never come back. Bye-bye. No, it's not true. The meaning of existence is that you should come back, but you should come back from the other position, as complete, as having completed your evolution. The practice of Vairagya, I wrote here some ideas for you, starts from within and never from without. It does not matter what clothes you wear, what kind of people you live with. What really matters is what kind of attitude you have towards the various things, persons and events you come across in life. Vairagya makes for a balanced attitude, an integrated approach, a feeling of love and compassion for all, yet a sort of detachment which works in everything that one does. Vairagya is thus a manifestation of the purity and peace of one's mind. It bestows upon the disciple an undisturbed happiness and silence which remains unchanged whether he is confronted with events which please him or others that are unpleasant. There are three stages of Vairagya defined usually by the commentators of Patanjali. 
In the first stage, all the likes and dislikes towards the objects of the world are active in the mind. An effort is made to control the natural passions and cravings, such as the tendencies to hate, towards violence, and so on. This stage is characterized by the struggle to overcome the effects of this attraction, rejection. In the second stage, some items of this raga and dvesha, attraction, rejection, come under the control of the mind, but there are still some items which have not yet been controlled. In the third stage, the conscious aspect of raga and dvesha, attraction, repulsion, is completely annihilated and the mind becomes free of these tendencies. Thus, we see that in the first stage, there is effort without much success. In the second stage, there is partial success. And in the third stage, the aspirant completely succeeds in the extermination of raga and dvesha, although their roots may still be there. Therefore, this is the thing of detachment. Remember that the great key of detachment is very simple. Every one of you here can be detached, truly. It's not much of a mental effort to be detached. You know what makes the difference? Your faith. If you believe in detachment or not. I'm talking to you and I've been talking for half an hour almost about detachment and I can talk for 18 hours more about detachment and in the end you will still not be convinced if you don't have to be convinced. You simply cannot be convinced because somewhere inside you there is a little stubborn midget which says, no, no, not quite everything, no, no, I cannot conceive of that. If you cannot conceive of that, meditate carefully, because you are on the road to perdition. The road to perdition doesn't mean you will be lost forever. The road to perdition means you will go and bang your head in a thousand extra lives, doing the same stupid mistakes which you have done until now, just to learn the painful lesson that there is no door in that part of the world. If you really don't want to listen that there is no door there, go and bang your head another thousand times on it until you will get to the point of saying, well, there is no door there actually. Attachment is no door. It doesn't lead anywhere. That is why the yogis simply say, if you can understand this wisdom, detach. Detach because this detachment is like a test. If you want to take it into a theistic way, you can say that God makes this game with you. Are you ready to give everything for me, for God? Let's see. One little try, just once. Do it once, for five minutes. In the moment when you can surrender and let go completely, and say, yes, I give up my body, I give up my mind, I give up everything, and I'm ready to die for you right now, nothing matters, in that moment you have reached freedom. That is where the freedom is, and in that moment you have reached the spirit. But it's exactly like, hey, to reach there, you have to give, it's like a test of maturity. It's like a rite of passage. It's like you have to surpass a certain threshold, and it's like a test. You pass this test, you go further. You go to the next level. And that is why, think about detachment with friendliness and with openness, because detachment is pure wisdom. Either you take it from the yogis, or you take it from Buddha, or you take it as the dispassion of the Christian mystics, or whatever other things it has been called. It always means the same, but we need to admit that for the regular human being, it very often feels like an act of faith, like an act of confidence. I don't have any guarantee of what's on the other side, I just have to close my eyes 
and step forward with confidence. Those who have this confidence that, yes, I can do that, those are the ones who are fully ripe for spiritual life. It doesn't mean that the others cannot do it. You can be a young soul, but wise and gifted and gifted with sattva and good karma, and suddenly you can understand and say, okay, I can try to do this as well. I didn't feel it in the beginning, but I can see the wisdom of it, and I will try to do it. Why not? And that is why everybody can try detachment. Remember that in my life, whenever I have seen yoga disciples who did not do so well about their detachment, it was simply because somewhere secretly in their own mind and heart, they actually did not want to be detached. Not 100%. They were cheating. They were trying to cheat. And trying to cheat yourself is the most stupid thing that you can ever do. Therefore, remember that don't cheat in the issue of detachment. It's something through which now, or in 5,000 lifetimes from now, you'll still have to go. One day, you'll have to make the ultimate leap. And then, you know, the Bulgarian proverb which says, if you want to drown, don't torture yourself with shallow water. That means when you really want to do the step, do it, you know. Don't do it halfway, it's stupid. When you want to go, take the big sword and cut deep, you know, because it's kind of no need to do a hundred failed attempts. One and good. That's all you need to do. And finally, to conclude the idea, Patanjali concludes by defining detachment as taken to the extreme. Actually, I don't know, I have not defined that, let's turn a little bit back, because Patanjali says, when an individual becomes free of craving for, and there are two things, for the sense object which he has experienced, and for those of which he has heard, then this state is called detachment. Basically, what does Patanjali speak? He speaks about attachment for something which has been experienced, therefore physical, most often, and something of which you have heard means some imagination. Somebody tells you there exists a wonderful fruit in Thailand which is called durian. You have never eaten it, uh, but uh, and maybe it will smell too strong for you, but you should know that it's an adorable fruit. And there you are going home and tapping your fingers and saying durian, durian. Durian, I have never tried durian, you know, I'm still frustrated that I've been in Thailand and never tasted a durian, you know. That's imagination, that's the desires at the level of the astral body. So basically what Patanjali defines in the light of metaphysics as defined by Paramahamsa Yogananda and as we define it in the Tantric Yoga, Patanjali says detachment is to detach yourself from the physical desires and from the astral desires. But hey, that is not complete. If you remember, those of you have heard metaphysical discourses, because there is also a causal level. What about the causal things, which indeed are incomprehensibly subtle, and that to say that some of you should detach tonight of your causal desires is a joke, because you don't even know what the causal desires are and what they consist of. But still, they are there in the background. People are usually plagued by physical desires and imaginary astral desires. So Patanjali speaks in the first sutra, in the sutra number 15 about this, but then in the sutra number 16 he has to mention the others, which would be like the ultimate detachment, pushing detachment indeed to the ultimate limit.
That is why Patanjali in Sutra number 16 defines the supreme detachment, the absolute, the ultimate level of detachment, which is called by his commentators para-vairagya, the supreme vairagya, the ultimate vairagya, the ultimate detachment. He says, the highest degree of detachment is when there is freedom from the desire for the gunas, which are the gunas, everybody who passes through the second month of our yoga courses gets a lecture about Purusha Prakriti and the three gunas. So that's when you learn, if you have done that, you know, if not, wait until you get to that level. The gunas are some causal energies of nature, which are called tendencies in Western translations, and these are the constitutive qualities of nature, the basic bricks of nature. And I'm reading again, the highest degree of detachment is when there is freedom from the desire for the gunas, due to the perfect knowledge of Purusha. So due to the perfect knowledge of that transcendent nature, even the desire for the highest level, for the third level, for the causal things, can be destroyed. This desire is illustrated by the desire for the gunas. Freedom from the gunas. That's the ultimate freedom in the way in which Patanjali describes it. Therefore, there are two varieties of vairagya. One is the lower state and the second is the higher state of detachment. In the lower form, the aspirant transcends the attachments for sense objects, but they, these still remain in a subtle form. There is conscious control by the mind and the desires and cravings are kept under control. The para-vairagya, the supreme detachment, involves not only giving up the duality, but even the deep-rooted taste for experiencing thus the sense organs. There is a possibility of falling back from the lower vairagya, but when one attains to para-vairagya, to the higher one, there is no longer danger to return to the life of cravings and passions. Para-vairagya is characterized by the absence of desire in all its forms. There is no desire for selfish pleasure, enjoyment, knowledge, or even sleep. This happens when there is awareness of the real nature of Purusha. This supreme awareness of the Purusha gives rise to the freedom from the three gunas, which are sattva guna, rajas guna, tamas guna, as all of you know. Again, some of you who are not ripe or not uh, steep enough in the spiritual practice or experience, they can get afraid because it's like you have to kill everything, even the desire to experience, even the desire to live, even this thirst of life, as Jack London calls it. Everything has to be destroyed, and it's again, it's like an act of faith. Why shall I, why should I push it so much? This is disturbing, because people say, aha, you destroy your desire for everything, and now this orange guy tells us that there is a hidden part of yoga, which also says that you are going to come back to, what use is there to come back if you don't have some desire? It's kind of, you will be in the world, but you will be like a dead man, you will be like, you know, without desires or cravings. So then what use is to have the candies around you when your desire for candies has entirely disappeared? That is not true, that is not the way, that's again a misunderstanding. You destroy the desires in the first stage to be able to go out there, and when coming back you can build them at will. The desires are a part of the manifestation, and you cannot relate to the levels of manifestation without these desires. But a Buddha, a Shiva consciousness, 
can create some desires like props for existence. And then apparently the desires exist. A Buddha can eat a cake with great pleasure. But he is never dominated by that. That pleasure, uh, the attraction for that cake, has been created because else life indeed would have no meaning. It would be a complete absurdity to turn back to a universe of which you are deeply bored. You can turn back to the universe and recreate the fascination of it, and even more, because the normal person is ignorant and sees only a little bit of the reality. But a Buddha, the Shiva consciousness, sees the abyssal depths of reality, sees the mysterious dimensions of reality, and then you can truly enjoy. That is why it's not about destroying enjoyment. Again, it's about that this enjoyment should not be your ruling motivation. It should be something which you create because it's nice to have it. It's exactly like you can create a dream and then you can create a beautiful, fascinating dream. You know that it is a dream, but you can create it anyhow. Even a Hollywood movie is a dream, but if you can see it without getting attached to it, then automatically it becomes just entertainment. In a certain way, from a certain angle, that's a specific angle of one of the Enneagram temperaments, we can actually say that the whole universe is entertainment. For, for Shiva, the universe, besides being evolution, besides being transformation, besides being so many other things, Dharma, the universe is at the same time a great entertainment. That's why Shiva also dances. There is a dance related to it, and therefore it is, there is an art of this existence of this universe. And I'm going to stop here, because in the next sutra, Patanjali changes subject entirely, and he comes, he goes further to the states of Samadhi. So let's see again what did he say. He told us what yoga is, he gave us what the modifications of the mind which spoil the yoga are, and now he told us how to get rid of those modifications of the mind by defining clearly abhyasa and vairagya. Then he is going to turn back to his favorite topic, and he is going to talk to us about the beyond, about the divine consciousness, about samadhi, its different levels, and the accomplishments related to that. That we are going to continue with in our next lecture, not on Wednesday, because then we do the yoga in daily life, but most probably on Friday, when we'll continue with the analysis of the sutras. With this, we have finished for tonight. Remember that you can always send your questions in the mailbox back there, for the time when we'll do a session of questions and answers. It is finished for tonight.